Hello, you're listening to the National Trust podcast. As we launch into 2020, we begin a year-long celebration of our 125th anniversary. One announcement we made this year is our aim to be carbon neutral by 2030. By 2021, we also hope to source 50% of our energy from renewable sources. In our new podcast series, 50% Renewable, we'll look at just what it takes to reach this goal. And this week, we're sharing episode one of this series. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of the series on all podcast directories or at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. This is 50% Renewable, a podcast from the National Trust. I'm Lucy Green, a professor of physics in UCL's Department of Space and Climate Physics, where my passion is for the sun, our star that is centrally important to all of our lives. And as a scientist, I'm committed to achieving a sustainable future. Now, as the National Trust moves towards its 2021 target of generating 50% of its power from renewable sources, I'll be taking a 750-mile trip around England and Wales to look at five of more than 100 renewable energy schemes that are being worked on across the Trust. This may give us some insight into what a sustainable energy future could look like for all of us. One of the partners helping achieve this goal is BMWi, who are helping enhance renewable energy technology at the places the National Trust care for and enabling visitors to charge their cars at more of the properties. They've also supplied us with an all-electric BMW i3 for the journey and they have helped bring this podcast to you. And my journey starts here in Northumberland, nine miles from the Scottish border at Cragside, one of the National Trust's most northerly properties. And what a place to start my journey. I can see a lake off to one side. It's absolutely beautiful. I've been driving through wide open landscape, but now that's being replaced by a rather narrow road, which is winding its way up. I've got trees either side. And up ahead, I can just about make out a house. This house is where our sustainable story starts. And I've been told that there are some secrets in store. So I'm off to meet Andrew, who's going to enlighten me. But first, I need to find him. is a real warrant. It is fantastic for exploring in. There's all these little rooms off to the left-hand side, paintings on the wall, and I just keep seeing interesting things. It's full of artefacts. I'm now in the kitchen. It looks quite mechanical in here. Axles turning and cogs, a spit roast over by the fire. The reason this house has been described as a smart home is that it has things like central heating, telephones, flushing toilets, even a Turkish bath. And this place becomes even more impressive when you realise that most of these luxuries were installed almost 150 years ago. Andrew, hi, I'm Lucy. 
You are the guru of all things Cragside, but you're also the conservation officer here, is that right? I am indeed. Now, Andrew, I think there's something that you want to show me. Absolutely. This is one of the wonders of Cragside. Oh, wow. Is this... So there's a lift that you've just produced out of what I thought was a cupboard. Originally, it was powered solely by water just by the pressure of water. Um, can I go for a ride in it? You certainly can. Here we go. So I've come to find out a bit about this fantastic house and who was the person behind all this technology and this innovation? Well, William Armstrong came here to build a little country retreat. The house went from about 10 rooms to 100 rooms over a 15 year period. What made him put these fantastic pieces of technology in? He wanted to have function and beauty. And of course, that's what he, the aims were, along with his wife, Lady Margaret. As a young solicitor, Armstrong longed to pursue his passion for engineering as he witnessed the prosperity created by the Industrial Revolution. But it was the coal that powered this industrial progress that gave Armstrong sleepless nights. In business, he always wanted to be efficient. That was one of his great drive, and he was always looking to make everything he made efficient. And in a speech for the British Association for the Advancement of Science, he made this eerily relevant prediction. He predicted within 200 years all the coal would be mined out, that it was a, a resource that wouldn't last forever, and we would have to find alternative energy. He predicted this in 1863. In his speech, he suggested that the Earth's suitability for the extensive formation of coal appears to have passed away forever, and that the power of water descending from heights to which it has been lifted by the evaporative action of the sun could be a source of energy that would last forever. He said, well, all this water's running away to nothing. You know, it runs every day in streams and rivers we can harness all this water. Uh, and initially that was for hydraulic power, but then at home, here at home at Cragside, he started to experiment with hydroelectricity. And that's what makes us the first house in the world to be lit by hydroelectricity. So these are the original lights from that era? They are. And are they still lit today by the water flowing through this site? We're very proud to say that they are. Today, the power for these lights is drawn from a small hydro scheme on the lake I passed on the way in. But in Armstrong's day, the whole of this steep, rocky landscape was used to generate electricity in a much more elaborate way. To find out more about how water is important to this story, I'm going to be using a vehicle that Armstrong would definitely have approved of, an electric car. To get a better understanding of how Armstrong used this landscape, I've got a three mile drive across the property now to where Armstrong's hydro journey begins. Cragside is one of the few trust properties that encourages you to drive as well as walk through the landscape. And this six mile route takes you to the farthest reaches of the property. It's a bit like a safari park for plants. But being in an electric vehicle, it's so quiet, it makes me feel less intrusive. And I'm actually 
turning off the road now and I'm going to have to continue on foot. Where I'm standing now is the last place my car can actually go because where I'm headed, there aren't any roads. And to guide me around these landscapes, I'll be meeting Duncan Norman, Cragside's lead ranger. Hi. Hello. Are you Duncan? I'm indeed. I mean, we're stood now in the middle of a forest and we I are. can hear water running in the distance. Um, tell me, why is this landscape so important? Well, the fact that you can hear the water tells you everything you really need to know. Cragside is a, it's a crag and the house is on the side of it, hence, hence the name. We're on top of the crag now, the, the highest point of the estate, where they can collect water off the moor. Can you show me a bit more about how he, how he did this? Yeah, absolutely, no problem. Cragside's an amazing landscape, but it's a landscape that was designed for a purpose, and the purpose is to harness that water power. This is, if you like, the, the biggest, most obvious bit of engineering on the site. The water is collected from the dam on the moor. He obviously needed to build a, a false river, so he built this amazing canal on stilts. Really? This is amazing. I mean, as you see, you go around the corner, it goes on forever. It's just an amazing bit of engineering. Okay, um, show me where this heads. So this down below us here, that is the Blackburn. So we've taken half the water from that, and all this water will rejoin that water eventually. So it's only borrowed. This is the point where the water leaves the flume. We've kind of moved the river up the hill. And as we continue walking, this artificial stream culminates in something that I did not expect. This is my favourite part of the estate, this lake. It's just lovely. Our view has changed quite significantly now from the sort of side of the hill we were walking down to this really open expanse of this lake. And how big is this, is this lake? 20 acres one of the biggest lakes on the property. This is just a great store of electricity and water form used to power the house. So these aren't natural bodies of water, they were created for a purpose. It looks natural, but if you look under the surface, it's all man-made. Well, if you had natural lakes, all you're gonna make is you'd normally put them at the bottom of a hill. Lord Armstrong put them on top of the hill, but at the highest point of the estate. The powerhouse where the power is generated is at the lowest point of the estate. And that's a key point, isn't it? Because you need the water to flow down under gravity and then you can yeah, harness the exactly. energy. Exactly, it's 100 metres between where we're standing and, and the powerhouse. So now we can continue following the water. We've been, up, been from the moor to the lake, but we can now follow it all the way down the hill. It'll be an underground pipe, but we know where it is. All the way down to the powerhouse and we can complete its journey where it does its work. Great, looking forward to seeing it. No worries. God, Duncan, coming through this landscape, I mean, it's quite steep in places and you really get a feel, actually, for how far the water has to travel from up in those high lakes down to the powerhouse at the bottom. Gravity is playing a role here in supplying energy to the water that ultimately means you have a far source of water at the bottom that can be used to generate electricity. But gosh, it is a long way down. What Armstrong had created was a classic small-scale hydro scheme in the canal and penstock formation. The canal being the artificial river that diverts the water to the reservoir and the penstock being the pipe that we are following down to the powerhouse. The penstock uses its small diameter and the 100 metre head, the head being the height that the water falls, to create a small volume but highly pressurised flow of water that's then released into the turbine. Well, I can hear the river now, so I guess that means we must be getting to the bottom. Yeah, we were at the 
highest point at the start and now we're at the lowest point. We've come 100 metres down. And this is the other burn, this is the, the Debden burn that forms the, uh, the other half of the sandwich with the black burn. Very noisy. When we crossed the river, we encountered a turbine of sorts, but not the kind of turbine I was expecting to see. We have a water wheel. We do. So this is a water wheel that pumped water on one of Lord Armstrong's farms. And it's very large. It's, what, I don't know, two and a half, three metres in diameter, something like that. Absolutely. The water fills each bucket when the bucket gets heavy. Obviously, around it goes. And you'll hear the water sometimes um, falling out of the buckets as well. And the other thing I can hear is lots of water sloshing around. So some's going in the water wheel, some is falling out of the water wheel. This wheel is turning quite slowly, isn't it? It is, yeah. It uh, takes about 30 seconds to go right round. It's obviously a big wheel. It um, hasn't got the speed or the efficiency to power electricity. And that's the main aim and that, of that's, our story. That's the whole point of this story, <laughs> is to generate electricity. Yeah. So let's head on that's to the, the powerhouse. Hydropower is nothing new. It can be traced back to China in the 3rd century BC. But up until quite recently, like the wheel we've seen, most turbines were reactionary, in that they used the weight or volume of water to spin the wheel and drive the shaft. In the mid-1800s, engineers started experimenting with impulse turbines, which fired a high-pressure jet of water at the turbine, forcing it to spin at high speed. And this is the kind of turbine that Armstrong used in his powerhouse. So, we have made it to the powerhouse. We have. This place is wonderful. Lovely wooden, vaulted ceiling, beautiful brickwork. And this is where all the important stuff happens. It is, and for the important stuff, we're going to speak to Robin Wright, our engineer. Hello. Good, good to meet you, Robin. <laughs> and I can see in the room around me there are various bits of kits. The important kits threw in the, the other end there where the uh, main turbine was put in in 1885. Ah, oh, this is fantastic. I can see a huge, beautiful piece of uh, machinery in front of me. I don't know if it's about three, two, two and a half metres long. And this is the turbine here, so this is this circular structure part of the machinery. And yes. it's, it's all enclosed, so it's very different to a water wheel. All the water is kept within that, that system. Yes, it meant there was no water wasted. Uh, the trouble with water wheels, uh, only 10% of the water is uh, generally used on a, on a shot water wheel. Um, whereas all the water uh, was uh, put around this turbine. So the key to the efficiency is capturing all that water and not letting any escape. Exactly, yes. If you can use every drop of water that goes into the water wheels by having basically a water wheel inside a container, which is what a turbine is. How much energy was created using this, this equipment? It would run 45 light bulbs in the house. So not enough to power a, a modern house by Certainly today's not. standards? Certainly not. But significant for the time? Exactly, yes. And is this a piece of machinery that Armstrong designed and made himself? No, he was very good at uh, using uh, uh, items that uh, were already manufactured. Bear in mind they were using steam engines to drive these generators. Now, where Armstrong came in was the fact that he was using uh, renewable energy, which was unheard of in those days. Armstrong said coal would run out in 200 years, and uh, uh, he wasn't far out. And uh, he said, uh, if we can get water power working, it's up for later generations to look at battery power and uh, um, solar power. It is incredible, his foresight. I mean, these are exactly the questions that are important today. Exactly, yeah. We're yeah, looking yeah. at 
how can we store energy? And also the thing that I like about this site is, is the local nature of it as well, that, that we're now thinking again about what can we do in our own homes and in our businesses locally to generate energy, electricity, yes, yes, and yes. not rely on national programmes. Yes, yeah, correct. And what about the future then on this site? What, what, are, what are you doing that takes what Armstrong taught us all those years ago? Well, we're quite keen to put a new turbine in, uh, which we're hoping to do next year. When was the last time this, this system was operating? It was probably in the 1930s. Has it been a significant effort to prepare this site to use it again? It's been quite a, quite a job. We've, uh, uh, we've put a new pipe inside Armstrong's old pipe. We had to seal the lakes at the top because they were artificial lakes and uh, uh, we did a bit of work on that. So after around 100 years, the same system that Armstrong used will be usable again? It is, yes, yes. The water is now outside the door waiting the uh, turbine to go on the end of it. And uh, seen as Jilks supplied the turbines and they're still on the go today in Cumbria, it's quite a nice link with them uh, uh, to put a new turbine in here. So they'll be providing a modern turbine yes, for you? Yes, 140 yes. years after the first Exactly, first exactly, which would be nice. We have them here today, actually. Well, great, I would love to meet them. OK. Hi, Joss, good Hi to meet you. Good to meet you. Now, you're working for Jilks today. I am, indeed. And what do you think Armstrong would say about the work you're doing today, about sort of bringing things full circle and picking up his vision again? I think he'd be very excited about it because there was a huge amount of, you know, civil works done here to build the lakes and to put the penstock, which is the pipe that feeds the turbine in, um, which isn't being used at the moment. And um, if we're able to put the machine in, then all that infrastructure can be used. And this story has one more cyclical historical twist. Those humidifiers you could hear running in the background when I was standing in the turbine room, well, they help keep Armstrong's original turbine rust-free and in pristine condition for visitors to view. And it's these humidifiers that will benefit from the electricity created from the reincarnation of the 1885 hydro scheme. Essentially, the new turbine will be looking after the old. What I've been learning about on this site is, is the role of the individual in generating mm. power, in generating electricity to cover their own needs. Yeah. And I think that's a message that actually has been lost over the years. We're so used to going to the plug socket and having a national network. Yeah, very much. I mean, this machine was here to... Its sole purpose was to provide electricity to be used locally. And you hope it sends an important message to the visitors here at Cragside about what they can do? Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Robin, let me bring you back into the conversation because I want to have a think about the future. And the National Trust has an aim to become 50% renewable. Yes. How is Cragside helping that? Well, uh, we're doing what our, our little bit here. Uh, we have vast quantities of water at Cragside, but uh, because it was the first place in the world to have hydroelectricity, uh, it's quite nice to get it up and running again. I think my takeaway message is that you do what you can, and the strength that you're playing to here is in the history of the site with the hydroelectricity and the infrastructure that you already have to use that again. Yes, uh, I think that's correct. Uh, and also, I think uh, we have to play a big part in trying to uh, generate enthusiasm uh, for young up-and-coming engineers uh, in the world today. Well, this has been just the first leg of my trip. And as I'm pulling off, it's actually just started to rain. What stood out to me today, though, I think, is how 
we can learn lessons from the past. And being sustainable with energy on this site has been something that's been thought about for over 100 years. But today, when we're in an era of climate change, it's been really good to see that a 150-year-old idea is just as viable today as it was then. And as I continue on my journey, I'm really excited to see whether there are other lessons from the past that we can learn to protect our natural world, to protect our heritage and benefit our future. The next leg of my journey will take me to Snowdonia, where I'll be learning how one of the Trust's most popular gardens is embracing a renewable present and is well on its way to a rather sci-fi sustainable future. You can find more episodes of 50% Renewable on all major podcast directories or on our website at nationaltrust.org.uk slash 50%. That's 50-P-E-R-C-E-N-T, where you'll also find information about what steps you can take to use water in a more sustainable way. This is 50% Renewable, a podcast from the National Trust. The production of this podcast has been made possible by BMWI, the exclusive automotive partner of the National Trust. Thank you for listening to this special episode. If you've enjoyed it, look out for the rest of the five-part 50% Renewable series on your favourite podcast app or at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Next week, we'll be bringing you an episode of the Countryfile Live podcast before returning to our usual National Trust podcast schedule. 